Hello, this is David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 66 of A History of England. At the end of the last episode, I said we'd look at how King George III eventually got the Prime Minister he wanted. We'll move on to that soon enough, but first I'd like to spend one episode looking more closely at the setting in which that happened, the crisis in Britain following the end of the American War and the World War to which it led. We've already seen that the war was provoked and its effects made a great deal worse by the behaviour of a series of British governments more intent on cutting costs and reducing debt than ensuring the country was equipped for the new world role it had carved for itself. You might feel that it would have been better never to have adopted that imperial role. But having taken it on, for better or for worse, Britain's failure in war for lack of proper resources led to shocks being felt across the political establishment back at home. Take the case of that poor Edmund Burke as a curious example in itself, but also because it's linked to many other issues of the day. You'll remember that he was a highly significant figure in the field of political thought in his day, even if he never rose to high office. For most of his career, Burke represented pocket boroughs in Parliament. These were parliamentary constituencies with electorates so small that the local magnet could push electors to choose the candidate he favoured, given that the ballot wasn't secret and he held such sway over their lives or livelihoods that he could easily persuade them that it would be best for their health to vote as he wished. Let's remember, though, that there were other constituencies with electorates of a decent size, Nothing like today, since only a minority of men and no women at all had the right to vote. Even so, such electorates were too big to be in the gift of a single patron, which meant they delivered a real mandate, one based on something much more like public opinion generally. Charles James Fox, for instance, for a long time an ally of Burke's, represented one of these bigger constituencies, Westminster. In the 1784 election, he held his seat narrowly, but his opponents in Parliament claimed that he'd lost. You see, there's nothing remotely original about denying the legitimacy of an election won by someone you oppose. Incidentally, his victory was held by Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire. Do you remember her? She's the one played by Kira Knightley in The Duchess. At the time, she was allegedly having an affair with Fox, and it's said that she won him at least one vote by kissing a cobbler. It seems he was an elector with an idiosyncratic view of what constituted a bribe capable of winning his support. It took a year for Fox to have his election finally confirmed, since both the King and William Pitt the Younger, now a firm enemy of Fox's, were intent on manipulating things behind the scenes to deny him. Throughout this time, Fox was a member of Parliament anyway for a pocket borough in Scotland. But, clearly, representing Westminster mattered to him, which is why he fought so hard to have his election finally verified. An even more striking example from a slightly earlier era was that of John Wilkes. Does the name ring a bell? Full marks if you thought of John Wilkes Booth, who, a century later, would assassinate US President Abraham Lincoln. He was a distant relative of Wilkes and named after him. In the 1760s, Wilkes published attacks on both the king and his governments, 
earning himself a period as an outlaw, which drove him into exile, until his debts abroad drove him right back to England and into prison. In the 1768 general election, he decided to run for Parliament and won in Middlesex. However, Parliament rejected the result. Middlesex, though, re-elected him three more times in February and March 1769. At the third of those elections, the first that was contested, Parliament officially awarded the seat to his opponent, though he had taken just 296 votes to 1143 for Wilkes. It took a long campaign of petitions and another win in the 1774 general election for Wilkes to be at last admitted to the House of Commons. That made him a voice speaking with real authority for radical causes. Wilkes probably wouldn't have found a patron for a pocket borough, so in his case it was as much by obligation as by inclination that he fought for election like Fox in a constituency with a large electorate. That's large by the standards of the time, though you'll have spotted from the numbers of votes that it wasn't large in modern terms. It seems that Burke had a hankering for that kind of seat too. Coincidentally, it was in 1774 that he stood for election in Bristol. During his campaign, he made a speech which included what has become his most quoted statement. Your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment, and he betrays you instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. It's a succinct summary of a view that sees elected representatives as leaders of their voters and not merely their delegates. Apparently the voters liked that idea because they elected him. So that was 1774, coincidentally the year Britain passed the Quebec Act. Britain's victory over France in Canada during the Seven Years' War had brought its 70,000 French-speaking Catholic subjects. British instincts towards such people weren't particularly kind. We saw in Chapter 50 that Britain had previously engaged in a brutal act of ethnic cleansing against another group of French Catholics, the Acadians, cleared out of their own part of modern-day Canada with 8,000 out of 12,000 driven to their deaths. For a long time, Britons harboured the idea of being pretty much as harsh to the Quebec French and keeping them in penal servitude. Cast your mind back, though, to what else was happening in 1774. In Massachusetts, the Boston Tea Party had happened the year before. The city was under British military occupation. With all 13 colonies becoming more restive, the last thing Britain wanted was another bunch of disgruntled subjects in a region bordering New England. The Quebec Act was a major concession for the sake of peace. It allowed former French colonists free and unrestricted practice of the Catholic religion and the maintenance of their established system of civil law. Interestingly, while it kept them on side, it contributed to the deepening anger in the future United States. There, the intensely Protestant population regarded this measure as one of the intolerable acts imposed by Britain. Apparently, it was intolerable to tolerate Catholicism. Protestant anger over the Quebec Act was far from limited to America. Many in Britain felt that the dominance of Protestantism, secured by the glorious revolution that had brought Catholic James II down, was being undermined. Protestants could metaphorically smell the incense, 
Here the sound of the wooden clogs worn by many poor Catholics in continental Europe ringing in the streets of London and imagine the Inquisition following in their wake, ready to destroy everything right-thinking, i.e. Protestant, Brits stood for. The fears were made worse once Britain was at war with the French, Spanish and Dutch as well as the Americans. Now the home islands themselves were under threat. Britain had a huge Catholic population on its doorstep in Ireland. It needed manpower from both the Protestant and Catholic communities there to help defend the place. It also needed Irish trade. Irish Catholics had limited human rights and were prevented, in particular, from playing any role in public life. Trade, too, was restricted, with laws preventing Ireland from developing certain industries and tariff structures limiting their external trade, not just with foreign countries, but even with Britain or the Empire. Driven by the needs of war and with the precedent of the Quebec Act behind it, the British government began to loosen some of those restrictions. That only heightened fears in fundamentalist anti-Catholic circles. In a time of economic hardship, as the war was creating, such paranoid fears found ready fuel. The result was an outbreak of quite spectacular violence. From the 2nd of June to the 9th of June 1780, rioting raged in London's streets. Starting with attacks on Catholic property, later extended to many public buildings, the capital was shaken by what came to be known as the Gordon Riots, after Lord George Gordon, leader of the anti-Catholic Protestant Association. Lord North, then Prime Minister, could only bring the situation under control by using the army leading to civilian deaths estimated as between 300 and 700. A curious footnote is that one of the militia units used against the rioters was led by the very same radical MP we talked about before, John Wilkes. His political influence went into rapid decline afterwards. It's likely that some of his supporters were among the rioters and many others backed them, so his actions were seen as a betrayal of the cause. The Gordon riots were traumatic for many in Britain. Looking back on them, Burke would say that they foreshadowed the French Revolution that began some nine years later. As well as loathing this kind of mob violence, Burke had another reason for rejecting the behaviour of the Gordon rioters. Irish by birth and with a Catholic mother and sister, Burke backed the loosening of restrictions on Ireland. Sadly for him, he represented Bristol, a major trading city. The last thing the good burghers wanted was more effective competition from their neighbours across the Irish Sea. A representative as a leader, not a mere delegate, as Burke had proclaimed? That was great in principle. When it came to being hit where it really hurt, in the pocketbook, it was just impractical theory. Principle was fine, but business was business. Burke ran for re-election in 1780. He lost his seat. His hopes of representing a seriously large constituency had died. Since the proposed reforms for Ireland were a consequence of the conflict and his support for them brought about his defeat, we can think of his misfortune as collateral damage of the global war that had engulfed Britain. For the rest of his career, he had to rely for a seat in Parliament on a patron providing him with a pocket borough. Losing in Bristol must have been a disappointment. On the other hand, 
Burke saw nothing inherently wrong in the pocket borough system itself. I mentioned last time that with the formation of the Shelburne Ministry, when Fox and Burke stormed out of government, but Pitt entered it, we saw cracks appearing in that little group. In fact, observers could have foreseen that happening when Pitt became one of the leaders of a campaign for the reform of elections to the House of Commons. He felt it was nonsense that some constituencies, the tiniest of the pocket boroughs, had no real existence, simply earning money by selling the common seat they controlled to the highest bidder. Meanwhile, towns like Manchester, growing fast in population and wealth as the Industrial Revolution took hold, had no representation at all. Burke fiercely opposed reforming these arrangements. As we know, he was keen on limiting royal influence over Parliament. As for Parliament itself, however, he saw the form that emerged from the Glorious Revolution of 1688 as perfect. Any change could only make things worse. Similarly, when a brother-in-law of Pitt's proposed legislation against bribery at elections, Charles James Fox led a ferocious campaign against it. In the end, he had the legislation so amended as to leave it toothless, and the proposal was withdrawn. It seems that corruption by the king was unacceptable to these Whig leaders, but corruption in the election of MPs was permissible, and indeed part of the essential fabric of the political system. I hope this has given you a sense that we're talking about a time of terrible stress. Britain was fighting another world war. That war was provoking economic difficulties, helping to fuel and brutalise religious tensions that were at a frighteningly high level. Within the political establishment, it was a time of many conflicting views of how power should be exercised. The king and parliament were in confrontation over their relative authority. Even within the opposition to the king and his governments, there were fluid and changing loyalties, as former allies clashed over what needed to be reformed and what didn't, what had to be denounced as corruption, and what had to be tolerated as long-established custom. That was the confused and bitterly divided atmosphere that the American Revolution and the subsequent World War had generated in Britain. It was the price paid by a Britain that had emerged from the Seven Years' War as a new global power, but had squandered much of its authority in ten years of austerity government. Now the bill was being presented for payment. Well, that's it for this week. Many thanks for listening. <laughs>